My guest this week is the Vice Chair of the Conservative Party for Youth and Member of Parliament for West Aberdeenshire and Kincardine, Andrew Bowie. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hey Nathan, good to be here. Now before we discuss all things relating to the Union, I want to ask you about the uh, current events going on in Afghanistan. Now the situation has deteriorated rapidly in recent days. What's your thoughts on the, the events at the moment and the current evacuation efforts? Yeah, so firstly, uh, I'd say, Nathan, that the, the scenes in Afghanistan over the past uh, couple of weeks have been gut-wrenching. Um, you know, I was, what, 14, uh, 13, 14, when the, the Twin Towers were attacked uh, in the United States. And I remember the, 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 the passion and the drive that we all had to root out terrorism and make sure that we didn't allow um, it to grow uh, in, in countries and failed states like Afghanistan ever again. And so to see uh, the Taliban, who gave shelter and encouragement to Al-Qaeda, who carried out those horrific attacks, uh, back in power uh, in Kabul, uh, you know, in almost 20 years to the day since British and American forces engaged them and drove them uh, from their position of power and influence, is deeply upsetting and deeply sad. You know, I joined the Royal Navy in 2007, and I never served in Afghanistan, but a lot of my intake did. Um, and, you know, for them, it's been, um, yeah, a, a, kick in the, a kick in the teeth that everything they fought for and, and built, what they believe was building a better future for the Afghan people, uh, seems to be crumbling before their eyes. So we very much hope that everything, all the good that was achieved, by the uh, coalition troops and the aid agencies and the NGOs and all the diplomatic staff over the last 20 years was not in vain. Um, However, I think we have seen and read that the Taliban have already uh, insisted they will be again banning music. They will not be allowing women to go out without uh, a male escort. We've seen a terrorist attack already before we've even left on the airports, killing American and Afghan uh, citizens. Um, and I, I'm afraid that the, the future prognosis of that country from where I'm sitting right now is, is not good. And so it's, it's gut-wrenching. But what we have to say and we have to commend has been the incredible efforts of the FCDO team on the ground in Kabul and our incredible uh, soldiers and airmen who have just done an incredible job at getting so many uh, Afghan uh, workers, people who, who put their faith in us over the last 20 years, worked with us to try and build a better Afghanistan, and British citizens um, out of out of that country. Uh, as I sit here right now, it's roughly fourteen and a half thousand people have been evacuated from Afghanistan, and that's an incredible number. Um, and of course, we've got our new settlement scheme, which will take twenty thousand over the next five years. On top of that, and of course, that number can change if it's if it's if it needs to. Absolutely, it really has been just a Herculean effort by the Ministry of Defence and the Foreign Office. And of course, you were in the House of Commons for the debate in uh, around Afghanistan. What was the atmosphere like in the chamber, and what was the general consensus amongst your colleagues? Nathan, it was, how would I, I, I find it difficult to describe? It was pretty downbeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was quite depressed. I think um, you know the, we're very fortunate that in the House of Commons right now we have. Uh, quite a strong cadre of former service personnel, many of whom had experience in Afghanistan, people like Tom Tugnat, Johnny Mercer, and on the other side of the floor as well. And um, it was it, we, we heard their experiences and, and their thoughts on the matter. It was quite a sober, sober day. Um, I mean, I used it to, to raise the, the plight of the family that I was trying to get out of the country. 
very happy to say that uh, they have now made it to, to Britain and are now um, in quarantine, will be for the next uh, mm -hmm. week, I suppose. Uh, and I very much hope to meet up with them in person uh, when when they're when they are allowed to to, mm -hmm. to sort of get out of quarantine in the hotel that they're in right now. But um, it was it was it, it saw the House of Commons, I think, with a, with a couple of exceptions, sadly, but on the whole, at its very best, mm. very serious uh, deliberations over uh, a very live and emotive uh, topic, um, you know, and about an issue uh, on which many people in that room had had direct. And and indirect experience. So no, it was it was it was quite uh, something to be there. Yeah. Well, well, let, let's let's move on to looking to something a bit close to home. Let's let's look at Scotland and the the Scottish National Party, the SNP, announced just a couple of weeks ago that they had created a coalition deal with the Green Party. Why why have they made this agreement? Who knows? <laughs> well, no, I'll tell you what we do know. We are, we we know why why they've done it because it it creates a a government in Edinburgh. That is uh, of uh, a majority. Uh, that, that, that is a majority government in, in the Holyrood Parliament for independence. Uh, that's the only reason that uh, she has gone into coalition with the Green Party. They can dress it up all they like, talking about you know ambition to get to net zero, the climate emergency, uh, you know COP26 being held in Glasgow, all the rest of it. The only reason, the only reason that she has gone about this and gotten the Greens into government is so that she's able to say we have a government, a Scottish government that is in favour of independence. But you can use that to, to argue with us at a UK level that we should allow a second independence uh, referendum. Uh, I can tell you right now that that's not about to happen. Uh, right now, the polls show roughly 46, 47 percent in favour of independence in Scotland. I think far fewer than that think that we should be having a referendum anytime soon, given that the focus should be on rebuilding and recovery from the, the pandemic. But, you know, Nathan, <laughs> these people... The Green Party, I mean, we laugh at them. We call them the SNP's gardening wing. I mean, they've been, they've, they've been in a de facto coalition for, for about uh, the last five years. You know, they supported the SNP at every single turn, at every possible moment of confidence uh, or question of confidence or competence in the SNP government. The Greens have rode to the rescue and made sure that the Nicholas Sturgeon has remained first minister and the SNP have remained in power. And they've just now uh, made it official. Um, but as I said, so we, we laugh at them, we call them the SNP's gardening wing, but it's actually, you know, much more dangerous uh, than that. They, they are, they, these are extremists. Um, they, they don't believe in economic growth. Uh, they would turn off the taps in the North Sea uh, tomorrow in a constituency like mm -hmm. mine that is heavily dependent on the oil and gas sector. That would be a hammer blow mm -hmm. to thousands of jobs, uh, not just in the North East of Scotland, Ryan, but actually across the entire United Kingdom. It's, 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 you know, daft in my eyes. I mean, it's, it's just ill thought through that somehow by turning off the taps in the North Sea and, you know, not going to affect making so many people unemployed, we're going to have a, a major positive impact on the environment. Well, that's just nonsense. We're still going to be using oil and gas even if we turned off the taps. The only difference is we'd be importing it from Russia and the Middle East. Really, that doesn't help anybody, not least, uh, not just because of the, the, the climate situation, but because we have huge ethical problems with how some of those countries actually govern themselves and how the oil is extracted. So um, we've got huge, huge problems uh, with the Green Party. Um, as I said, I don't think their being in government is good for Scotland. Um, I certainly don't think it's going to be good uh, for the future economic um, prognosis of this, the, the country. Um, but what it will do, I think, is enable us uh, to shine a light on just how dangerous these people are. Uh, they are not the cuddly, friendly environmental campaigners that people think they are. They are 
very dangerous people indeed, or and who don't care a jot for people's income or their job security. Well, you mentioned that there is a pro-union sentiment around uh, the polling in Scotland at the moment, but the recent Scottish Parliament elections now have MSPs with a pro-independence majority, but the vote share of Scotland may consisting of being pro-union. Yeah. Is, that, is that reflective of where the division is in Scotland at the moment, or do you think there is definitely a much more pro-union attitude among the Scottish people? I, don't, I, look, I think the majority of Scots don't want to see Scotland separated from the rest of the United Kingdom. I wouldn't go so far as to suggest that there is a pro-union uh, opinion uh, in, at large in Scotland right now, because I, I'd suggest that there were people that voted for the SNP in May who, if it came to it, would still vote to remain in the United Kingdom. People voted for the Scottish National Party for a whole host of different reasons. They may have liked their social policy or their economic policies or their education, or God knows why, or their ed education, uh, ed ed plans for uh, the future of Scottish education. That doesn't mean that they would vote to separate the UK, because when it comes down to brass tacks and the questions of currency or the questions of defence or the question of Scotland's role in the world or Scotland's role in Europe or trade or a hard border, none of these questions have been answered. And, you know, the people of Scotland are very rational, sensible, educated people. And uh, they may like Nicola Sturgeon as First Minister. I don't, but they might. It doesn't mean to say they're about to throw the baby with the bathwater and surrender their, their child's uh, uh, future and the future of the country that they love. Um, in saying that, as Nathan, that doesn't mean to say they're pro-union. I am, but they may not be. They may have huge issues with the United Kingdom and how it's governed. Very different to then vote to rip the entire country apart. Um, so I think that's where Scotland is right now. As I said, only 46-47% of people say they would vote for independence. I'd suggest if it came to a referendum, which we very much hope it won't, it would be far less than that. Um, and it's very much, very much lower than that when it comes to when you ask the question of would you have a referendum mm. now? Because nobody in their right minds thinks that a damaging and divisive referendum on and if people equate it with Brexit, yeah. it's much more than Brexit. This is about nationality, this is about who people think they are. Um, it, it, so it's much more than that. And the 300 knowledge year uh, ties, uh, economic, political, military, familial between our nations on this, on these couple of islands, it's much more than that. So it would be divisive and nobody wants to go down that route now. Right? Since, since the last referendum in 2014, the, the UK has seen some major changes and that's one of the main justifications from those uh, in the pro-independence category. Uh, on yeah. this, I mean, the, the UK is on its second prime minister. It's voted to leave the European Union, had the constitution close to breaking points throughout trying to implement Brexit, and we have since left the European Union. So, those are some major changes since the first referendum in 2014. So, yeah. do you not agree that Nicola Sturgeon does have a point to some extent in that a second vote would be held under very different circumstances to the first? Yeah, but it was always going to be held under very different circumstances to mm. the first. And this argument that, you know, Scotland was 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 told that if it voted to remain in the UK, it had more of a chance of staying in the EU. Of course, that was true in 2014. But also, uh, what is what is true and what is not mentioned as often is the fact that the people of Scotland knew very well if the Conservatives won a majority in the 2015 election, there would be a referendum in, on our membership of the EU. And you know how I know that because it said so in the Scottish government's white paper on an independent Scotland. So it's not like they didn't know what was coming down the track. And Nathan, you're right. We're on. Uh, we've had. We're on a third prime minister. If you count David Cameron, uh, we've had uh, a whole host of 
different events, global scale, including Brexit. Um, and yet, and yet, the, uh, the, 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 the Scottish independence still only uh, gets uh, or manages to, to achieve uh, roughly 47% uh, in the polls. I mean, if, uh, with apparently, according to Nicola Sturgeon, an incredibly unpopular Tory with a capital T a government led by the old Etonian uh, Boris Johnson. And yet they still can only get 47% in favour of independence. I would suggest that if they weren't going to achieve it under these circumstances, it's, it's never going to happen. That doesn't mean that I'm complacent. We obviously work very hard to make sure that it doesn't happen. But I, I sincerely believe that they must be very disappointed that in the last Scottish election, the Scottish National Party did not achieve a majority, that in order to get a pro-independence majority, they've had to go into coalition with the extremist Greens. Uh, many of people within the SNP deeply unhappy at that, uh, at that situation, not least here in the northeast of Scotland. And as I say, that despite everything that we have thrown at them, <laughs> unconsciously or not, uh, they have been unable to succeed in getting more than 50%. Instead, a, a consistent uh, polling of over 50%. A senior UK cabinet minister told Politico earlier in the week that a second Scottish independence referendum could take place if polling consistently shows that 60% of Scots desire a fresh vote. Do you you agree with that or do you think there should be a different basis for a fresh referendum? Well, I mean, the government's position is that we are uh, not going to be granting another independence referendum Mm -hmm. to Scotland. The last one was held in 2014. And despite the fact, as we've talked about, the the circumstances are vastly different to they were in 2014. It was agreed this was a a once-in-a-generation, once-in-a-lifetime vote. And we can't just decide to plug for another uh, referendum on such a huge issue just because the government of the day has changed, or there's a different prime minister. Um, uh, but um, I believe it was the Secretary of State for Scotland that suggested it was going to be uh, that that would be the government's position. Um, I think it's fair. I think that if 60% of a country consistently and over time demonstrates that it wants another independence referendum or supports the case for Scottish independence, it would be uh, rather churlish and one might say even undemocratic to refuse uh, that desire. That's But we are a long way off. From that right now, roughly 13%. It has never, never yet hit 60% in favour. And we shouldn't forget, Nathan, that in 2016, I believe, or was it 2015, when Nicola Sturgeon became leader, she became leader in 2014, but I believe it was 2015, that Nicola Sturgeon herself said that she wouldn't call another referendum on Scottish independence until the polls suggest 60% of the Scots, the Scottish people uh, were in favour of that. And I would also suggest that if I was her, or if I was in the SNP or supporting independence, that that was a very that would be a very wise position to take because you do not want to create a wholly independent country uh, on the basis that only just over fifty percent of the population uh, voted for it. You would be starting off from a position of a, having a hugely divided uh, country, and we're not talking just about Brexit here. This is not about leaving the political construct of the European Union. This is ripping apart, as I've said, uh, people's nationality, who people think they are. Uh, dividing a 300-year-old union, uh, the most successful political, economic and military union the world has ever known. To do that on the basis of just over 50% of people supporting it would be very dangerous, I think, indeed. So I think the suggestion from, I believe it was the Scottish Secretary, was, 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 was right, sensible, and you know, it would be, frankly, absurd if we were to deny a referendum if polls consistently and over time showed that 60% of Scots wanted a referendum simply don't believe that's ever going to happen. It's certainly nowhere near it right now. Has devolution done more harm than good for the union? Uh, no, 
I think having the Scottish National Party in power in Edinburgh mm-hmm. has done more harm than good. Devolution has the has the uh, the ability uh, to make the union work better than ever before. It gives uh, it devolves power down to a, a much more representative and accessible level. Conservatives are very much in favour of that across the United Kingdom. Um, it allows uh, MSPs elected in Scotland by Scots to determine uh, the future of Scottish education, Scottish health, Scottish transport infrastructure, and a whole host of other. Uh, and, and gives it a whole host of powers over other areas. Uh, the problem is that we have in power in Edinburgh and have had for the last 14 years a party that doesn't want to make it work. They don't want to make devolution work. They don't want to work with the UK government to make devolution a success. They want devolution to fail so they can say the United Kingdom has failed. So we're in a position now that we've got a UK government who really want devolution to succeed and, and, and a Scottish government in power in Edinburgh that want it to fail. And, you know, people, we hear them regularly uh, in the House of Commons and, and in Hollywood talk about power grabs or about the anti-devolution Tory party or all the rest of it. And, and nothing could be far, further from the truth. It was Donald Dewar, the, 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 you know, the father of devolution, the first first minister of Scotland, who said, you know, devolution uh, is a journey. And he's absolutely right. Um, and it's going to evolve over time. And of course, there are going to be times that we think that maybe powers should be better held in London, or there's no reason why the UK government can't directly talk to or fund projects in certain local authorities without having to go through uh, the devolved legislature in Edinburgh. But if we had a government in Edinburgh that we could work with and talk to, then we wouldn't have to be thinking like that. We've got, I mean, mm. right, look at it just now, there. The Scottish government, because simply because they don't like recognising there are benefits to being in the union, are refusing twenty million pounds to spend upgrading Scotland's roads. You know they refuse to take part in the union connectivity review, despite the fact that would lead to better connectivity from Scotland to the rest of the UK and even into Europe. And this is just madness. So we want to see devolution work. It's not going to work as long as the Scottish National Party remain in power in Edinburgh, and that's why we just had a Scottish election. I think she was very lucky with the timing of that. I think she came out of the Salmon uh, 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 inquiry looking very good. I think that at the time, people could suggest she had dealt with COVID in a competent and professional manner. I wouldn't dispute that, actually. I think some of the decisions that were taken were the wrong ones, but competent and professional, yes. And people don't like seeing change at a time of national or international crisis. And actually, we saw that in the elections in May across the United Kingdom, the incumbent getting at getting more support than maybe we thought they would at the time. So I think if there was going to be a Scottish election held now, the result, whilst I think the SNP would still win, wouldn't be as strong for them as it was back in May. And I do not believe in five years' time they will be in anywhere near the position of power or influence they are in. And I very much hope that we are able to form at least part of the next Scottish government moving forward. It's a, long, it's a long-term project, but we're in it in, for the long haul. And I very much hope that we do end up seeing a unionist as uh, the next first minister of Scotland. So we can make devolution work. And of course, what one of the uh, projects that's been looking at the union more broadly across the UK is something that you've been involved in, and it's the new Conservative Union Research Unit. What, yeah. What's the purpose of this new organisation? The main purpose, Nathan, is to promote the benefits uh, and the issues uh, in the different parts of our United Kingdom uh, to Conservative representatives uh, at West- Westminster and uh, to the UK uh, at large. Uh, you know, far, for far too long, we haven't discussed Scottish education or 
Scottish healthcare or Welsh roads or Welsh transport infrastructure or, or, or Northern Ireland broadband projects. We don't discuss them in Westminster. And so these countries, these different parts of the UK become alien to the majority of members of parliament that sit in the sovereign parliament of our United Kingdom. So the aim of the of Kuru, of the Conservative Union Research Unit, is to promote these issues, to garner debate, to start talking about these things again, so that the UK parliamentarians are engaged in issues all across our United Kingdom. And of course, that includes England as well. You know, we need Scots to be interested in what's going on in Cornwall, for example. We need, you know, Kentish people to be involved in what's going on in Armagh and all the rest of it. That's that's what we are. Uh, that's what we've been set up to achieve, to make sure that this Conservative and Unionist Party really speaks for and talks about issues across the entire uh, United Kingdom. So if we don't, then we could become blind to what's going on in our own country. We can't allow that to happen again. And I mean, the, the conversation around the union and devolution at the moment, it very, do, it very much seems to be focused particularly on Scotland. Do you think so much talk around Scottish independence can come at the expense of other issues in the union? For example, the Northern Ireland peace process? Yeah, yeah, no, I do, actually. I think that we take our eye off the ball uh, what's going on in Northern Ireland at our peril. I think it's really important that, that anybody that cares about the continued success of our United Kingdom is fully engaged uh, and in touch with what's going on uh, in Northern Ireland and also in Wales. I mean, let's not forget we've got a Labour Party in power in Wales, which is sounding more like a, a separatist party uh, uh, by the day. Uh, so, yeah, we talk a lot about Scotland. Uh, I talk a lot about Scotland as because I am Scottish. I represent a Scottish seat. Uh, but we, we, we do, as a, as a party, need to engage much more on Northern Irish issues. And that's why, um, as vice chairman of the party, I've been tasked with working with the party to see what more we can do as a political organisation, a political party, uh, in, in Northern Ireland uh, moving forward. So, yeah, fully aware that we do seem to spend an awful lot of time talking about Scotland. That might be because our Scots have got very loud, uh, loud voices. Uh, but that, that isn't to say that we should take our eye off the ball of what's going on across the world. Brexit has been one of the biggest points of tension around the longevity of the union. And logistically, as a result of the current Brexit deal, Northern Ireland has been trapped in almost a, a, a state of limbo. And the governments of Scotland and Wales are almost adamant at keeping us tied as closely as possible to the European Union. If this situation continues and there is still that uh, tension between the four nations, can the union survive? Yes, absolutely. The union will survive. Uh, the union has overcome greater problems than what we're dealing with right now, and it will again. Um, and I have absolutely no doubt that the union is here to stay. Um, I think that, of course, there are issues uh, with the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, but we continue to be in negotiations with the European Union on that. I mean, the government in the Republic of Ireland don't want uh, the relations to deteriorate between ourselves and them. The European Union wants to have a grown-up trading relationship with us, its, its biggest trading partner, its closest friend and ally. We want to see the European Union succeed. We just didn't want to be a part of uh, the club anymore. Um, but, you know, so, so we, we continue to discuss the issues in Northern Ireland. We hopefully will be able to see a way around or a change to or a renegotiated uh, protocol for Northern Ireland. That, the discussions are ongoing. Um, yes, we've got a Scottish National Party in power in Edinburgh that wants to see us as aligned to Europe as closely as possible and for as long as possible, but I firmly believe they won't be in power forever. I'm certainly going to work my hardest to make sure that they're not going to be in power in five years' time. And the same goes for Wales. You know, the, Scot the Welsh Conservative Party are in such a strong position now compared to where they were five, ten years ago. 
and they're going from, you know, strength to strength. So I firmly believe that if we get our act together and we work hard, uh, we can overcome these issues uh, as strong as they are. And in five, 10 years time, the union will seem as strong, if not stronger than ever. Well, let, let's move away from discussion around the union at the moment. I'd like to ask you about your time as Theresa May's parliamentary private secretary when she was the, the prime minister. What, what, what was it like working in number 10 during those long and arduous Brexit battles? It was like, it, Nathan, it, they, they were long days. They were arduous. They were acrimonious. Um, you know, you'd go into the tea room in the House of Commons and colleagues would sit at the other side of the room, not wanting to talk to each other. And, you know, there was camps of people following different people. It was, it was, it was like nothing you have ever experienced before. And those, those uh, meaningful votes uh, sitting there listening to the results, you know, they were really tough because you, uh, you get very close to the individual uh, that holds the office of prime minister when you're their PPS. And I, uh, you know, found myself becoming uh, very close to Theresa and the team, the incredible team of dedicated individuals that were in number 10 Downing Street around her. And all I'll say is that every single one of those, those men and women, many of them young men and women, uh, the only reason they were in those jobs, uh, the only reason they went into public service was to uh, make this country a better place and to um, attempt to find a way through what was an incredibly difficult uh, situation. And I remain very disappointed that we didn't succeed. But to ask you, to answer your question directly, what was, it was a privilege. It was an honor and a privilege. And uh, would I do it again with the same result? Yeah, I would. It was, it was a moment in history and a real honor to, to, be, to be there in the front line. Um, very tough, you know, standing on the street when um, Teresa resigned. And again, when she left for the last time, was, you know, uh, difficult. But we had some real high points as well, winning uh, votes of confidence, you know, uh, it, you know declaring uh, that, that, that we would be the first country in the Western world to set an ambition for net zero by, by 2050, you know, setting up Dunlop Review to, to improve Scottish uh, devolution. You know, there were so many good things that happened in those six months um, that have all been overshadowed by the Brexit battles that we were enduring. Um, I would go through, I would do it all again, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and I very much believe that, uh, you know, history will be much kinder to Theresa's administration than it probably is being uh, at the moment. And saying that, I did support Boris Johnson for leader. I believed he was the only person that could get us out of the situation we were in. And that has been proven right. Uh, proven right. He has went on to lead us into the general election, which not only delivered Brexit, but delivered our biggest majority since, uh, since the 1980s. So um, it's a very difficult situation, but I've got, you know, I look back on those days with great fondness. We all know, and as, as you mentioned then, that the 2017 to 19 Parliament, it was very difficult and very contentious at times, and particularly for the government at the time. What was the biggest challenge you and the government faced during those long periods and very late sittings? The meaningful vote. Uh, that was it. Uh, the biggest challenge we faced, I suppose, was having Speaker Burke win the chair, making up the rules as he went along, uh, declaring just, you know, on a whim that we wouldn't be allowed to bring back the vote a third time. Um, also, another big issue we had was Labour MPs giving us their word that they would vote a certain way and then reneging on that agreement when it came to actually having to walk through the lobby with the government. Um, those are probably two of the biggest challenges that we faced. Also trying to, you know, 
pulled a, a conservative party together that had been riven on the issue of Europe for about well, two decades. Mm. Um, and you know, we, we failed. We, we failed. We failed to do that. We failed to deliver the deal that that, that was negotiated um, and the deal that was got, went on. That Boris went on to negotiate. Uh, turned out to be a good one, and we managed to get through the House of Commons. And the rest is history. But no, the meaningful votes were the difficult, the most difficult period uh, parts of that that time. Uh, get trying to get them through the house and dealing with uh, uh, an um, an irrational uh, and uh, unpredictable speaker, uh, I would suggest, was was the worst part. Another dealing with a, a press, uh, a press corps that just made things up. You know, you would you would read the uh, you'd go into a meeting, you'd come out of the meeting, somebody would brief or leak from the meeting, and you'd read. Uh, a description of how that meeting had gone and some of what had been said within it that bore no relation to what had actually been discussed or said in the room at the time, but that was taken as gospel. And of course, that helps frame the, the, the situation in the public eye and, 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 and will we'll, we'll sort of set the tone of the debate. Uh, and that, of course, is incredibly difficult to deal with as well. Was there ever a time when you thought that there was a genuine possibility that Brexit just wouldn't happen at all? Uh, no, uh, I always knew that Brexit would be delivered. Um, and that's why I, you know, really fell out, actually. Well, didn't fall out. We always tried to, to bring people with us. But that's why I got so frustrated, uh, not just with uh, with members of the opposition uh, who wanted to, you know, uh, rip up Brexit or stop Brexit uh, without even, uh, you know, recourse to another referendum, but also with, you know, members of parliament on our own side. You know, the, the British people had voted for this. Yes, by a small margin, but they had voted for it. And it was our right and our duty to deliver on that result and to do it in the best way possible for the British people. That's what we attempted to do. That's what Boris ended up doing. Um, and, you know, we were holding the country back. It's very difficult now, in hindsight, having lived through COVID, to, um, to remember just uh, what a burden, the intransigence, the, the, the sense of immobility in Parliament was having uh, on the country and on the economy. It was hugely damaging. Mm. And so we needed to move forward. We needed to deliver Brexit. And I always knew it would be delivered. I hoped at the time it would be delivered with Theresa's deal, ended up being delivered with Boris's deal, and we've moved on. And the country has survived. Uh, and it will, will continue to survive as people, you know, mm. in the years to come. Um, I never for a minute thought that Brexit wouldn't happen. Um, there were times I thought we might we might end up being end up being in a place that we had a second referendum. That was never going to be the option. That was never the choice of the prime minister to take. But some of those indicative votes, for example, you know, or, you know, we we just didn't know what what the outcome was going to be at times of those votes in Parliament because we didn't have a majority. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I knew Brexit would happen. Didn't quite know the form that it would take or when it would happen. I'm just very glad that it's over with now. And since leaving Downing Street, you've become the Conservative Party's vice chair for youth. Yeah. And the, the Young Conservatives, they are the, the fastest growing membership group in the whole party. Why, why do you think that is? God, well, Nathan, you tell me. I, I mean, I don't know. Um, I'd love to claim all the credit, mm -hmm. but I'm afraid it's, it's, it's nothing to do with me. I, I think it's because people, young people don't like being, people in general don't like being told what to think. Yeah. And I think uh, far too often, uh, in this country especially, um, we tell young people that they should be, you know, more left-wing or activists or, you know, uh, anti-establishment, anti-capitalist, you know, all the rest of it. But actually, most people in this country like to make up their own minds about things. And what the great thing about the Conservative Party is that it's such a broad church that you can come into the Conservative Party um, with 
you know, almost, almost directly opposite views to the guy sitting next to you and find yourself working uh, in a safe space that you can talk about your views and your opinions, try and influence policy and do it in a, in, in a place where the, you know that you're going to have, have support as at least some of the people around you. So I think that might be one of the reasons um, that, 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 that we don't tell you what to think. Uh, we let you make up your own minds uh, and we like to hear your ideas. And it is one of the few organizations in the country, I believe, that you actually are able to influence the policy make and the decision makers uh, of this country. Um, and you have got direct access to people who are pulling the levers of the fifth biggest economy in the world. I mean, what's not like that? And also we throw good parties when we're able to. So, uh, you know, uh, for, for all of the reasons above, uh, I think uh, the YCs are, are, are doing very well at the minute. And I, for one, can't wait to, to see so many of uh, the Young Conservatives at conference in Manchester in October. It's been such a long time since we actually got together as a group. Uh, we had a virtual conference last year, which was great. You know, had a fantastic turnout. We had some good events, but and we've had some really good events over the course of the year over Zoom and Teams. But um, to actually have us all in the, in the same room again, I think, will be brilliant. I'm very much looking forward to it. And with, with the Young Conservatives being such a, a large part of the party structure now, how is an increasingly younger presence impacting party policy? You mentioned before the access YCs can have to the decision makers, but how is that influencing the party policy today? Well, I don't, I, I think it'll take time to actually have a direct, I mean, you do have an influence on uh, policy uh, because we express the opinions that are given to us by members of YC through the forum formats and, and the, the, the forums that we have. The biggest impact, however, of a growing YC uh, in this country has been the change uh, of a membership a, a, parliament, a type of parliamentarian in the House of Commons. We've got members of parliament now that are 25, 26 years old, Sarah Brickford, Nicola Richards, Deanna Davidson, you know, Jack Brereton, you know, I feel, I feel ancient at 34, um, Ben Bradley. You know, we've got MPs in there who just yesterday, it seems, were members of young Conservatives. And so know what it's like to be a young person in Britain in 2021, or at least in the mid-2000s, uh, uh, mid-2010s. Um, and that's so important because we bring to Parliament a wholly different perspective on life, on the direction of the country and on the lived experience of so many people than people who have been in Parliament or are, have, are coming into Parliament from a different generation. Their perspective is equally as important. But for too long, there were no young voices in Parliament. And I think that that is one of the huge successes of the Young Conservatives, is pushing people through the system. Councillor, to members of the Scottish Parliament, Welsh Assembly, London Assembly, hopefully at time, in time, Londonderry Assembly, and yes, into the House of Commons as well. So you can make the voice of young people in this country heard in a way that has never been heard before. We've got the youngest parliamentary party in the history of the Conservative Party. Just take, for example, debates on the environment. The Conservative Party wasn't talking about the environment, really. It was, but not in a serious way until 2017. Then the demographic of the party shifted, shifted again in 2019. Now it's all we seem to talk about. You know, there's so many issues, uh, and that's a good thing, by the way. There's so many issues that we, we talk about now that we didn't before, simply because there are young members of parliament, simply because we are being influenced by a strong young conservative presence in the party. And it's a great thing. And as a result of that, what can a conservative government offer younger voters? Well, this is the, look, we're, we're, we're dealing with the crisis, uh, the, the world's crisis of coronavirus right now, and trying to find a way through 
and trying to work out how we want to rebuild the country. And I think it's really important uh, that as we do that, we think about the generation that has been more affected than any other. And that's, that's the 18 to 25 year olds, those that have left school, uh, are going into university or have left university and going into the world of work or are going into further education or are going straight into the workplace, you know, who, 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 who exited their educational establishments or found their educational establishments closed, who saw the job market collapse, who saw the housing market uh, shut, um, whose thoughts about travel or exploration uh, were curtailed, um, who weren't even allowed to go out for a drink with their mates. It just the, the, the everything that we took for granted as young people, as every generation has taken for granted, was stopped. And so I think it's really important that, that the offer that we make young people is that we will listen to you and that the experiences that, that you've had over the last year and a half will be core to what we decide to do and how we decide to build back. What are you, what, what, what is important to you? What are we not doing now in response to what you have lived through over the last year and a half that we could be to give you that hand up into the world of work, onto the housing market, all the rest of it, so that we can, we can move this country forward because you are the generation that will inherit the mess that we are trying to deal with right now. You're going to be the ones that are going to be paying for it, I'm afraid, yeah. when I'm well into retirement and beyond. So we need to find a way to engage with you. And I think one of the best ways that we do that as a party is through Young Conservatives. And I think that just the ability for you to pick up the email or whatever, pick up the email, God, how old are you, Andrew? You know, send an email, you know, pick up the phone, whatever, send a text, get WhatsApp, and just say, you know, Bowie, why are you not doing this? Have you thought about this? We've got the Young Conservative Policy Forum, which is being launched. That's a great way for young people to get their policies into government. You know, we've got Conservative Party Conference. Yes, it's a good laugh, and we all have a enjoy the receptions, but actually, you've got the, the opportunity there to lobby and pull on the, 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 the coattails of, of, of really important individuals who will be making decisions that will impact on all of us in the very near future. So to answer your question, Nathan, the best thing we can do is just to listen more, and the best thing you can do is to shout louder. Oh, you mentioned the, the fact that so many younger people have been adversely affected by the, the lockdown and how much of an impact it will have going forward. And you know, when we look at the situation at the moment, the tax burden is at its highest rate since the 1960s. Lockdown has pushed the national debt to over two trillion pounds. Is the Conservative Party still the party of financial responsibility when you, when we look at those immense figures as a result of this? Yes, uh, yes we are. Um, but every country in the in the world has had to take decisions, and every government of every colour in the world has had to take decisions that it wouldn't uh, would rather not have uh, taken as a result of the global pandemic and the uh, the result of lockdown. Um, uh, you know, over the past uh, year and a half. The Chancellor will be outlining the direction of travel in terms of the economy and his plan uh, at party conference in October. And then of course, we've got the awesome statement in November uh, where he will be explaining how he hopes to get the country uh, back on track. We are very much the party of fiscal responsibility. We very much want to see this country uh, on uh, uh, getting back to business and getting back to normal. And we don't want to increase the tax burden on the ordinary British citizen. We believe that burden is as high as it needs to be. Um, so there, there are going to be some tough decisions that are going to be taken uh, in the next uh, few months. Decisions that in the short term, uh, people might um, you know, struggle to comprehend with a Conservative government. 
Um, but that's because we need to get out of the really, really awful situation that we find ourselves in right now. And I fully believe that we, more than any other party, will do what we have to do in as sympathetic and as sensible a manner as possible uh, when compared to some of the, the, the plans and priorities of Labour Party, the Scottish National Party or the Liberal Democrats. Um, because we have uh, the, 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 the confidence in business and the private sector to grow our way out of the situation we're in right now. And so the decisions we take over the next few months, difficult and, you know, as some of them may be, and I'm not in the room, so I don't know, as difficult as some of them may be, uh, will have at its core uh, our aim to grow our way out of this and support business and enterprise, ultimately support the British people to get back to work. And what one of the other things that, that the lockdown has brought to is the um, on the impact around young people is, is around the, the vaccine rollout. And mm. it, it has been slower for younger people. But I, w- I want to ask your thoughts around something the Prime Minister said earlier in the summer. And he, he said that he planned to make COVID-19 vaccination mandatory to access certain venues like nightclubs and cinemas if a certain threshold hadn't been met, just to increase the, the take-up among younger people. Do you agree with that idea? Yeah, I do, I'm afraid. I never thought I would. If you'd asked me this two years ago, before this, this pandemic, I would never have uh, uh, thought that I'd be sitting here, Nathan, and, and, and suggesting that vaccination should be a mandatory requirement to enter a nightclub or a bar or a restaurant or, a, or an event. But we have to get to grips with this pandemic. It has been the, 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 the worst uh, crisis we have ever faced. It has had an impact on every single aspect of our lives. It has crushed business. It has stalled the economy. Worse than that, it has, it has put the economy uh, very much into reverse. It has ruined lives and livelihoods. And we need to get back to normal. And if young people are not going to get their vaccine voluntarily in the numbers that we need them to get, then I'm, I'm afraid that I would, yes, support the Prime Minister's uh, position that to access certain venues or events or such like, you need to have been vaccinated um, or, 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 or have tested, tested negative uh, for coronavirus. Because otherwise, we're never going to be in a position where we get this virus under control and get life back to normal. And that's a difficult position to take as somebody who believes in freedom of speech, freedom of thought, and, and, and individual liberty. But individual liberty, freedom of speech, and freedom of thought comes with responsibility. And if you're not going to be responsible enough to go and volunteer and get your vaccine, I'm afraid the government are going to have to take steps which we would not ordinarily uh, uh, consider. And that's why I do support the Prime Minister um, when he suggests that it might be necessary for us to introduce uh, those those measures. In that statement, he also said that and proof of a negative test would no longer be sufficient to access certain venues. So surely that's simply a, a method of coercion by the state to restrict people's fundamental basic liberties. Yes, there is still a major public health crisis going on, but when younger people aren't as badly affected as those who are older and the, the infection rates don't seem to be as high for children and younger people, is this really still necessary? Uh, yes, I believe it is. I, 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 I'm, I'm, Nathan, I'm, I'm afraid I actually believe it is necessary um, unless uh, young people uh, do the responsible thing. And many, many of them are. Many of them are. Let's not tire everybody in the same brush uh, and get a second vaccine. Um, 
you know, we, we, we want to see an end to the coronavirus uh, restrictions in all of our lives. I want to stop. I want to stop having to wear a mask every time I walk into the shop, as we're still still have to do in Scotland. I, you know, I want to be able to 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 to, to go into a bar and order at the bar and not have to check in and track and trace. You know, I, I don't. I want to be able to sit in the House of Commons chamber and not worry about what 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 some more vocal uh, constituents might think about me sitting too close to the person next to me. Um, and it's it, it, we want to get back to uh, to. A, I want to be able to go and see my in-laws and my nieces in Sweden. Uh, without having to pay, you know, upwards when you when you throw all in of two hundred pound on testing each way, you know, we want we need to get back to a position where 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 normality uh, can be resumed, and in order to get there, we need everybody who is able to get both vaccines, and if that means we're going to have to coerce them into doing so by by restricting the the liberties that those who have been responsible enough to get their vaccines uh, have, then I'm afraid that that's the steps uh, we're going to have to take because we need this country for economic and societal reasons to get back to normal as swiftly as possible. So based on that, are you in favour of the proposed domestic vaccine passports for, uh, again, certain venues for access to them? I certainly think it's something that should be considered uh, seriously, yes. Okay. Well, I'd, I'd like to finish by bringing our conversation back to looking at the union. And just to ask you, on a personal level, why are you a unionist? <laughs> You know what, Nathan, that's one of the most difficult questions I, I get asked because uh, mm. I can't answer it. I'm just instinctively proud of proud of our United Kingdom. I'm instinctively mm. proud of what we've achieved throughout history. And I'm, I'm very passionate and proud to be British. Um, I, I tell a story. I remember when I was in the Navy sailing back from uh, from the South Atlantic, moving down the Falkland Islands for Falklands 25 in 2007. I was in HMS Edinburgh and we um, sailed across the equator and up um, past Tenerife and then round. Uh, into the English Channel, and it was a. It must have been a Wednesday night because we we're going to take part in a Thursday war in the Channel the next day. And uh, it was a beautiful one of these uh, sort of August or late July summer's evenings that don't really get dark. And it was sort of this rosy haze on the horizon. And we were we went to anchor just uh, off of uh, Penzance, and you 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 sort of just looked onto the cliffs and onto the shoreline, onto the small town, which was you know was 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 just you know, stereotypically, the, the whole thing was so stereotypically British, you could almost smell the fish and chips. And I looked across to Penzance, I just thought, that's, that's, my, that's my country. I didn't think that's England, or that's a foreign country. I thought, that's my country, just as much as I do when I look onto the coast or look down from the hills here in Aberdeenshire, just as much as I do when I'm in Cardiff. I see, I, I'm, I'm British, and I'm very proud to be Scottish, but I, I'm instinctively proud uh, to be British. It's something I've always felt. And, you know, when, when I was at sea uh, in the Navy on a tin can in the middle of the ocean with people from Liverpool and London and Glasgow and Edinburgh and Belfast and Cardiff and Swansea and Penzance, you know, it didn't matter that we were from different parts of the UK. We were all British together and working and fighting for the same, for the same thing. And I think if you just expand that onto a larger sphere, that's how I see the islands of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. We are a great country. And if we as two small islands in the middle of the North Atlantic can't stick together, then I don't know what signal that set, sends. Uh, we're speaking the same language, with shared history, shared values, shared, shared culture. We can't stick together. I don't know what signal that shows the rest of the world. So I'm afraid that doesn't give you a very concrete answer, uh, Nathan, but yeah, I'm, I am British and proud and, and, and always will be. 
Andrew Bowie, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.